Hello, let's run. Earlier this week, we released our normal podcast, and on the second hour of that podcast, we had an amazing interview with the 1968 Olympic 800 champion, Madeline Manning. Now, we've decided to release that interview as a separate podcast right here because we know many people, unfortunately, don't make it to the second hour when they're listening to a podcast, even if they have the best of intentions. And we want to get her story out. So coming up next is the Madeline Manning interview all by itself. But before we get to that, got to plug this week's sponsor, and it's our friends at thefeed.com. They have it all for you, whether you need an immunity-boosting pack, a fresh-applied Martin Spree sports drink, or even the AeroFit respiratory muscle training device. We've talked about those products in the past, but this week I want to talk to you about a new product at the feed that is perfect for these unprecedented times we are facing. BLDG Active. It's a brand new product at the feed. In essence, it's an antimicrobial sanitizer spray for your face. Yes, that's right. BLDG Active is an antimicrobial face and hand spray. It's a medical grade solution that you can take with you and spray on your hands and face. So after you go for your run, after you go to the grocery store, I know you're probably thinking, what the heck is on my face? Whip this thing out, spray it on your face. Totally safe. The spray was originally formulated to help reduce the risk of infection and cuts and sores without this painful sting of, of, of antibiotic ointments. And it can be still used for that purpose. It's used in hospitals around the country for that purpose. But a new version of the spray was just developed to be used on your face as an antimicrobial. This non-toxic, no-stinging solution can be used on not only your hands, but also your face, your eyes, nose, ears, and mouth. So, right now, go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, that's thefeed.com slash let's run, and you'll save 15%. Also, if you need running shoes, check out the Let's Run shoe site. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes. Without further ado, here's Madeline Manning. All right, everyone. We have the pleasure of being joined by the only American 800-meter Olympic female champion, Madeline Manning. She won the gold in 1968, and we were talking on last week's podcast. It's amazing. People don't know more about her. 1968 Olympic gold medalist, four-time Olympic trials champion in 800 meters, the first American woman to go sub-two in the 800. She held the 800 American record for 15 years. I think she was a three-time world record holder at 800. And then she's been to every Olympics since, except for the 1980 boycott. She's been an Olympic chaplain. I mean, she's done it all. She's seen it all. The world has changed so much. I mean, when she started running, the longest event at the Olympics was 1,500 meters for women. So, Madeline, you're an amazing athlete, an amazing person. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. And I'm just trying to think where to start because in researching your career, let me interrupt. I think I know where to start. I mean, Madeline, how can a woman with so much, so many accomplishments? I mean, you've done so much. And I must confess, I've been running this website that's focused on running, and I'm not sure if I even knew who you were a month ago. Do you feel like, I don't know, how is that possible? Do you feel like you haven't gotten the publicity and the attention that you should? I mean, everybody. It seems like on our website knows who Billy Mills is. He won gold in 64. Yes. Jim Ryan, some of these people, Frank Shorter, yep. et cetera. But, but, but you haven't maybe – you're not on the public consciousness as much. How can that be and why is that? Is it sexism, racism? How, how do you explain it? <laughs> um, it's interesting that you were naming all of my teammates. When Billy Mills ran, I was just a little girl in high school. And uh, I happened to see one of his 
uh, runs overseas. I was on that team, probably my first team that I was on, that he was running his last uh, 5,000 meter run. So I had an opportunity to see and meet him. And uh, of course, Jim Ryan was on my, my team. Uh, Frank Shorter was on my team. Um, you know, when you're on so many teams, <laughs> after a while, you, you, have, you, you forget who has been on what team. But um, you know what's interesting? That's a good question because I think that I've been the type of person that I don't look back or I don't look at um, the fact that, you know, I'm not getting the recognition. Um, I, I'm, I'm so busy focusing on what's present and going forward that I don't take time to be looking behind me. Actually, in our 50th anniversary in 2018 for the 68 Olympic team, that's really when I found out who I was, um, you know, as an athlete, uh, the accomplishments. I went to a reunion in Colorado Springs and they had the whole team there, all the different sports. And uh, I had the opportunity to sing the national anthem and also to um, share a little whatever. But they, they were introducing me. And I was sitting down and thinking, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I talked to my husband. I said, did I, is that right? Is he right? When he, it's been 50 years and no one has, no one else has won a gold medal. And I, I thought about, I was like, well, I knew that, but you know how you know it, but you don't think about it. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't, put any pressure on you. Um, I've written a book, The Hope of Glory, and uh, it is my autobiography. And uh, it's in, in the schools all across the country. It's in a lot of libraries. Um, it's, it's just been amazing because I don't look back and feel like, well, I didn't get my due. You know, uh, I have other people saying that about me. In fact, Weldon just said something that very seldom anybody says, and that is uh, she's the first woman to break two minutes in America. And he's right, but nobody knows that. And so I don't get uptight about it or offended about it. I just know that in my time, I did what I was supposed to do, and I finished strong, and I came out of it, and now I'm giving back. It's an amazing career. Let's sort of get started with it. I mean, there's you have connections to Jesse Owens, Wilma yes. Rudolph, and then now the connections now. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, I was reading a great sort of biography on you, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But it it claimed you got your start in running with the physical fitness test in high school. Right. Is that true? You were just, you weren't an athlete growing up. I mean, I heard you almost died at the age of three from meningitis. Yes. They said you weren't going to be able, you know, you might be mentally challenged. You may not be able to walk. And then that wasn't obviously the case, but you weren't an athlete. You just discovered, I mean, there weren't, I don't think people understand there weren't really many opportunities for women to compete back then. Right. But you running discovered you in this fitness test. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Aside from that, I was very shy. I was very inter. you know, I was the type of kid. I like people. 
but I didn't know how to meet people, you know? And uh, so had it not been for that test, the physical fitness test that uh, President Kennedy brought forth for our students in America, I probably would not have heard of me because I wouldn't have gone out for anything. Um, the fact that I had to do this and I actually was enjoying it and ended up breaking some of the top school records. And, and uh, <laughs> this one girl came in one day and beat all of my scores. And although I was quiet, I had a little tiger in my tank. And so I asked my gym teacher if I could take the test again. And she said, yeah, you can take it many times you want. And I said, okay. And I took the test every day for the next two weeks straight. And she said, finally, uh, it's over. <laughs> you know, you can't take it anymore. But when they compilated my scores, they found out that not only had I broken school records and was the top uh, physical fit girl in the school, but that I was one of the top physical fit girls in the nation and that I had broken some different uh, records in that category. Um, so that's when they came to me and said, you need to go, go out for some sports. I said, okay, what you got? And they said, well, we have uh, volleyball, basketball, and track. And I said, okay. And I went out for all three. And within that year, we became state champions in volleyball, basketball, and track. And I do believe that I had a little something to do with that. But all of a sudden, I found something I really did well and something I loved and would put a lot of time into. And I was actually discovered by a um, Hungarian coach who was watching me run one day and asked my mom if he could train me. And that's how that whole thing got started with me getting really serious about running. And so, yeah, th that coach, what was his name again? Alex Ferenczi. I couldn't say Ferenczi at the time, so I always call him Coach Alex. <laughs> he smart. became like a father figure to me, uh, very loving, uh, but really knew what he was doing with uh, the girls he was working with. And initially you were more of a sprinter, right? Of 100, 200, and then up to the 400? Well, actually I was like 200, long jump, triple jump, um, and the four by one. You know, that's what I did. But my coach, who was a gym, my gym coach at that time, came up and said, you know, we need somebody to run the 440-yard dash because we're close to winning the state championship, but we're in rival with another school. And so she said, would you do that? And I told her no, because <laughs> I, I thought I like to have died running the 200. Now you're trying to kill me twice. So I reneged on it, but she said, well, just go out there and jog, just, just jog around. At least we'll get one point. So I figured for, for the sake of the team, okay, I'll do that. And I uh, end up uh, winning and breaking the record, which I didn't even know if that was good or not, because you do something in my mother's house and break something, that's not good. So when they said, you broke the record, I'm like, is that good? <laughs> but that he was watching me and my mother was there and he talked with her and we got together and started working out uh, training together. He was the coach for the city team. 
So he was taking the top runners from different schools and combining them together to uh, prepare to run in the girls' nationals, which I hadn't even heard about. I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, and then I'm not sure when you ran your first 800, but the story I heard, I mean, some of this stuff sounds too good to be true, that you went to a meet in Canada. Exactly. And they replaced the 400 with an 800. It was an indoor meet, and you broke the world record. That can't be true. I was in the bathroom when they switched it. So I didn't know that they switched. So when I come come out and they're, they're saying, you know, well, it's going to be five and a half laps around. I'm looking, thinking, that's a little long. And so I waited and went over to the official and I said, did you say we're running five and a half laps? And he said, yes. I said, well, isn't that a little long for 440? And he said, no, no, this is the 800 meters. The girls want to run it. I said, who? Who said, no, I, I came here to run the 440. <laughs> so finally, he said, do you want to run it or not? And I said, well, let me call my coach. I called my coach and he said, he, he did one of these psych things on me. He said, just go out there and, and uh, use it as a training. Don't worry about it. Just use it as a training. Whoever goes out in front, just follow them. So I go out and I think, okay, the pressure's off now because I don't have to perform. You know, this is this is tra training. So I go out there and uh, long story made short, I ended up beating everybody and I was excited about it. And it was in the infield when this guy came over and said, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Madeline Manning from Cleveland, Ohio. And he said, um, this is so what do you normally run? And I said, well, I normally run the 440. But the, I went to the bathroom, and while I was in the bathroom, they changed the thing, and everybody wanted to run the 880. So I said, I, I called my coach, and he told me to use it as a trainer. And the guy's looking at me like crazy, <laughs> thinking, how in the world? And he said, you mean to tell me you've never run 800 meter before? I said, no, and I don't really want to run it now, but it's, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, I did well. <laughs> By that time, you hear the, the announcer saying, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the 800-meter run for the women's division is Madeline Manning, a high school girl from Cleveland, Ohio, who has just broken the world record. And I, I was on the floor, and I sprung up on top of that guy's head, and I was just out of control. I was like, did you know? He said, you didn't know that? And I said, no. You know. So when I get back home, my coach asked me, you know, well, what do you think about the 800 now? I said, nothing. And he said, well, they're not going to ask you to come run a 400 if, <laughs> since you've run a world record. And I'm like, well, you tell them now I'm not coming unless they let me run the 400. And he just smiled because then he knew that he had me doing both of them. And that's how I ended up running the eight and the four. Because most places I would go, uh, they would have me to run the eight, but then they, unless they allowed me to run the 400, I wouldn't run the eight. So now there you go. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. You know how fast you ran that first 800? 210 two. Wow. Indoors. Yeah. But it's just kind of crazy also. It just shows how things were different back then and women's sport was in its infancy because, I mean, now if somebody broke a record, it would be big news and there'd be all this pressure to keep running it and 
Oh just yeah. Just a different different era. So then you get recruited by um, Ed Temple at Tennessee State. I mean, he's like the legend in Olympic women's coaching. Coached Wilma Rudolph, and I don't know how many. I mean, I think in 1968, I saw there was six members of your team of your college team in the Olympics. I mean, it, yes. it was crazy. Yes, there were only nine of us on the team, and um, the other two uh, were from other countries that represented their country. So it was that made it eight and our ninth girl actually made the team, but because, um, they want the officials wanted her, our officials wanted her to switch out and, um, use a girl who had already made the team from Chicago in one of the sprints. They left her home. See, today they wouldn't leave her home because she actually came in fifth and they were supposed to take six deep and um, she would at least get a chance to go. But, um, yeah, our whole team, it was – in fact, Mr. Temple and, and Mr. Alex, as I would call them, um, were very close friends and both of them were Olympic coaches. They ended up being Olympic coaches and um, – I was, you know, amazed when I first came to Tennessee State University because to to be there sitting among everybody was a national champion. You know, there were nine of us and every last one of us was a national champion. So he let us know that, OK, where you're starting is where most people want to want to be. This is where they want to come. So, um we got to start at a different place. And he said, right now you're at zero. <laughs> Let us know that you will not be a Tiger Bell unless you meet my standards. So it was pretty tough, but it was a great, great camaraderie among us as a team. And so when, when you went to college, was that in 1967? 66, I graduated. Yeah. And, so you go to uh, college that next fall. Are you immediately sort of thinking like, hey, I'm going to make the Olympic team? Or at that point, you're it's you're too young. You're not even thinking about that. Kind of what were the thoughts? I wasn't thinking about that until I got around the Olympians. Um, Wyoming Atias was on that team at the time. She was a senior. And, um, and then um, Edith McGuire uh, had graduated. But she would come back and she would train with us at, at times. But then, you know, and Wilma Rudolph would come by. And, and when you're around those type of people and they're, they're talking Olympics, then, then you start thinking Olympics. Because before, on your own out there, you know, it almost seems like an impossibility. But when you're around people that have been there, done that, and are on their way back, then, oh. All of a sudden, you realize, I, you know what? I can, I can make the team. And not only that, we were the best in the country, so we did not think we weren't going to make it. This is like, who, who else in in the United States is going to beat us? But there was no NCAA championships back then. So, what is the team focused on? Like, what what meets are national? You- we we focused on nationals. We, you know, I, it's funny because when I go back to Tennessee State University. The, the athletes there talk about their conference. And uh, and I'm thinking, conference? <laughs> what, what's the, what about nationals? 
in fact, I remember talking to a bunch of them and, and say, and saying, you know, well, any of you, have you decided to try to make the nationals? And we were like, they were like, what? The nationals, we're trying to just make our conference and win our conference. I said, you're thinking too small. You know, if you're going to wear the Tiger Bell shirt, you better think higher than that. And I heard that next year, 1967, Wilma Rudolph, I heard originally, I don't know if this is all true too, her nickname was Skeeter. And they right. were... They're like, oh, there's Skeeter. And you're like, who's Skeeter? And then right. you just thought she was some woman who kind of come or came around every once in a while. And then you figured out who she was. Oh, man. Said to you, like, you can do some big things in this sport. Is that an accurate story? That is very accurate. I would see her come on the uh, campus. One of the things, she was a beautiful, very strikingly beautiful. And she would get your attention just by her walking by. But then she had such a beautiful smile and a warm spirit about her. Uh, but I could never figure out who she was. And everybody was like, that's Skeeter. So in 67, she came to the Pan Am Games and she was an ambassador um, for women's sports there. So she came over to our dormitory. We were walking and uh, one of the long jumpers told her, told me, um, that's, I said, who is that lady? I see her around the school. All the time. She said, oh, that's Skeeter. That's like, who is Skeeter? She said, that's Wilma Rudolph. I said, you're kidding. That's Wilma Rudolph. I used to hear about her when I was 12. And so she goes up and I told her, please, whatever you do, don't tell her I didn't know who she was. <laughs> and of course, Martha, the jester on the team goes right up to her and says, Skeeter. Madeline didn't know who you were. I was like, oh, gosh, I could have died. I was so embarrassed. And she came over and put her arm around me. And she just said, you know what? My time has passed. It's your time now. You go out there, do what you're supposed to do, and bring back that gold. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she said, don't be saying yes, ma'am to me. I ain't that old. I was like, oh, oh Okay. <laughs> But we became very, very close friends after that. And uh, she did that that year. And then in 68, I had I, I knew Jesse Owens because he was from my hometown, Cleveland, Ohio. But he came in to speak to the whole Olympics, uh, Olympic team in Mexico. And as we were walking out, somebody introduced him to me and he said, I know well who she is. And I thought he was just being nice. But then he starts saying, I remember when you ran the, um, the uh, 55 second world record as a girl in high school. And I was I like, he really does know me. But he did the same thing. He just said, listen, you're ready. This is your time. Go out there and get that gold medal. And I was like, yes, sir. So I obliged both of them. <laughs> Yeah. And going into t Tokyo, I heard you hadn't lost in two years in an 800. And you went, I mean, you destroyed the competition. The Olympic final, you ran two flat point nine. Mexico City. Yeah, you said you said Tokyo. Oh, Tokyo. Sorry. I'm getting all my Olympic years mixed up. Mexico City, altitude. And I mean, you won by over a second and a half. We're, like, 
when you look back at that race, you know, it's what, 52 years ago now. Are you amazed by how much you won by? Does it seem, can you still like think about like what you were feeling at that time? I mean, does it still seem real? Like, I don't know, just sort of give us your thoughts about that race in Mexico. It's funny because I have, I have the um, DVD of my race and the, the wonderful thing as a speaker, you know, it's a part of my introduction. They'll show it and people are like, they're right there at the time experiencing. And I get so excited, not so much from watching me do what I do, because I know what I've done, but watching them watch me do what I do and and ex- get excited about it and start screaming and hollering for me to come on, you can do it, you know? And I'm thinking, wow. So this was what it was like to be in the stadium watching me perform. Um, it's just a neat, a neat type of thing. It, it, it's exhilarating to watch other people watch me. And then, yeah, you know, to have been that far ahead of everybody, um, I knew that I could win. I knew that I, I had the best time in the heat. I had the best time in the semis. And I came in with the best time. Now, this is one area that there was a lot of prejudice there, Robert, because the like Sports Illustrated had said who all was going to uh, were people to to be looked at in the women's 800. And they never acknowledged that I had been unbeaten for the last two years in the world. They never acknowledged that. I think they had a line in there at the end of the uh, write-up that said, and watch watch out for Madeline Manning from the United States. And that was all. Even the commentary, um, the, they went down the lanes uh, of the finalists and introduced them and where they were from and said a little something about them. And, and uh, when it got to me, who I happened to be in lane eight, they said, and rounding out the field in lane eight, Madeline Manning from the United States, nothing else. So what it was that I found out later on was the myth was that women of color could not run long distance. And so with me winning it, with such a, a unique time, a world record, an Olympic record, uh, and with the space between me and my competitors, it awakened something in the world. And that's when uh, people of color began to run long distance. I met um, a young um, coach from um, Nigeria, uh, some many years later. And he was just saying, you know, uh, I know who she is. She's the one that is the reason for our girls running. Uh, because before her, we didn't think they could run because we thought they had fast twitch muscles and that's all they could do. But, um, she proved us wrong. And that's why women of color all over the world are running today. That was a shocker. You definitely proved everybody wrong. And I mean, now in the United States, 
Ajay Wilson, Alyssa yeah. Montano before that. It's Raven Rogers. Yeah. Raven Rogers. I mean, the top 800 women are, are all African-American. So, yeah. You look at that field wor- worldwide and, you know, you see the Ethiopians, the Kenyans. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of women of color who have stepped up and, and uh, are for running the uh, middle distance and distance runs. And the, you know, and also the, in 1968, I mean, I can't believe it's only five years before I was born because it seems like a different world, but like, I mean, Martin Luther King was killed that year. You yeah. had Tommy Smith and John Carlos with the protests at the Olympics. Right. So you proved everybody wrong. You come back home to America. Like how were you received? Um, accepted, but not recognized. In other words, they, they did not, uh, not accept me, but there was no recognition for any of the women, no matter what color they were, uh, on the Olympic team there, you know, it was interesting because, uh, Wyoming Atias had one the first time ever a male or a female had ever did back-to-back 100-meter races and won it at the Olympic Games. Um, And she just, it was, she was not recognized. I think that probably if we had been more vocal that we would have demanded attention, but because we were not, and... um, did not push ourselves out there to be recognized the way maybe some guys would have. Um, we, we just weren't recognized. We weren't turned down, but at the same time, you know, I look at, I look at what's happening now and what's happening now. You have a lot of um, uh, athletes who can use their platform to become millionaires we all would have been multimillionaires if we ran today. I was, I was going to ask this, um, Madeline, is like, what do you do to support yourself during that time? Because a lot of athletes in that era would do one, maybe two Olympics, and then they would quit and work a real job. And you make four teams. How are you supporting yourself? What are you doing? Well, some of that I was in school. So I was scholarshiped. But once I got out... I had to work a job like everybody else and, and train. So it was very hard, you know, like now today your training is your job. And you know, if you're up there high enough in the elite category, uh, you will be supplemented, um, by, you know, corporations and, and people who want to help you, but that was not available for us at all. I mean, it's kind of crazy because you're right. If if you won an Olympic gold medal now, you'd be a millionaire. And you just went back to school and they said, thank you very much, it sounds like. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So, so I mean, I, I was when I was reading the stats here, it says that you were, you know, number one in the world in 67, 68, 69, but number one in the U.S. in 67, 68, 69, 72, 75, 76, 80 and 81. And it says that some of those years, I guess, of those 14 years, you took off six of the years. Is that just to raise your son and do your job? Like, is that true? Some years you didn't run at all? Yeah, I thought I was finished. 
<laughs> you know, it, you go through um, a time where, you know, you train and you go to the Olympic trials, you make the Olympic trials, you get on a team, and then you, you go there and you compete. And after that, it's, you know, you want to, you really want to break. So a couple of those times, I thought I was finished. I really thought, you know, track and field's over, and so I'll do something else. But the Lord called me out of my retirement. That's what ended up, because I, and every time he would call me out, I would think, do I still have it? You know, can I, can I, I know he wasn't saying just run around a block, you know, <laughs> for exercise. I knew he was talking about something a lot greater than that. So it was scary. Um, it stretched my faith. And I was hoping that I still have it. I was like, okay, just on your word, I'll go and I'll try again. And he was right. I had more to give each time. So let's talk about the the other Olympics. I mean, you had the great success, I guess, what, at age 20? Is that right? When you won the Olympic yeah. gold? And then 72 and 76, you, you didn't make the final in either ones. In 76, I mean, you seem to be in the form of your life because you end up running an American record 157.99 a few weeks after the Olympics. So to tell us what – in both Olympics you didn't make the finals there. What happened with that? And – how disappointing was it not to be able to, to have that glory once again? 72 was hell year. H-E-L-L. It was hell. Uh, I had gone through a, a really bad divorce and I was really down. And I was actually, instead of running to glorify God, I was running to show you can't keep a good woman down. I was angry. I was hurt. I was a single mother. And um, I ended up actually um, making the uh, four by 400 team as well as the 800. You know, I was top in the 800 and I was able, I was second in the 400. So they put me on the relay. Uh, and that's how I ended up with a silver medal in the four by 400. And it was crazy because I was, I thought for sure that this was not, going to happen for me, but it did. But that was the year of the Black September coming in. And uh, I, I don't know if most people realize this, but the United States dormitory for track and field, the women were directly across from the Israeli dormitory. So we went out on the porch and we were watching the whole thing until they called us to, to come out of the building. And so in leaving, it was, th that whole year was horrible. And, and uh, I even ended up having a torn muscle in my leg. I was uh, training after, you know, after the funeral services and everything, and they restarted and everything. I was training and was just doing some easy 150s off the curb. And the last one that I did, I, you know, I was easing up just getting ready to stop. And all of a sudden I felt this pull, this pop in my right leg behind my knee. And, you know, you think, you know, well, uh, no, that, that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> you know, but then I found out that it did. And the, when I started trying to walk, all of a sudden I collapsed 
and they took me in to see the doctor and everything. They worked on it. Good thing we had a few days before I had the, the finals. And um, I actually tried to pull out, but the team wouldn't let me. And they said, you know, even if you're 80%, you're better than whoever else we have. And so I ran that. I'll never forget that. I ran that four by 400 in excruciating pain until the last hundred meters. And from off the curve down to the finish line where I had to pass the baton off, I don't, I don't even know what happened. I, I felt nothing. I heard nothing. I, all I knew is that I came off the curve and I was saying, Lord have mercy. Cause I could hear the Australian girl coming up on me. And the next thing I knew I was passing the baton. And so there, that was a little divine inter, intersection there that took place in my life. And, um, that's, a, that's a whole nother story, but what happened in the, in 72, I also ended up running and stopping at the wrong line because the official, I was in lane one in the semifinals and the official said to me, you will start here and finish here because you're in lane one. Well, he was wrong and they were taking the first four. So the first three were coming in together, um, right in front of me. And so they slowed down to a walk. So I slowed down and I walked, but I walked side going off the field. And when I turned around, I saw this, the English girl driving toward what I didn't know what she was driving toward. She was driving toward the finish line. But when I finished, I, she came over to me and she said, why did you stop? I said, because I was finished, right? She said, no, the finish line is up there. And I was like, oh, God, no. And it took 15 minutes for them to figure out that I had uh, lost getting into the finals by three centimeters. I was, I was just sick. I mean, I'm like, what, what else can happen? You know, this, this is horrible. So I ended up, um, you know, what, running the four by four and not finishing the 800. Um, that was 72, 76. I just, uh, ran the most lethargic race you can imagine in the semifinals and, um, was challenged afterward by, um, the news media who came around me. I remember them saying to me, um, you, uh, you say you're running for Jesus. Actually, I had written a book, book authored a book called Running for Jesus, and I had a, my first album, uh, Contemporary Gospel, um, was called Running for Jesus. And so he was saying that to me. You said you're running for Jesus. Well, what we want to know is, are you going to still run for Jesus or are you going to try something else? And so I looked at him and I was like, you know, uh, this is not a figure of my imagination. You know, I... Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And whether it be on this track or on some other track in the world, I will always run for Jesus. And so it was a, quite a time that I had an opportunity to actually minister my faith to the world because they, they put me on all these cameras to answer this question. <laughs> and, well, 
I think that you're the perfect minister for the Olympics because you've, you've experienced it all, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, the wrong yes. line and injury and even the boycott and, and the massacre of 72. I mean, it, it, I could not imagine a better person than you. But one thing that I also jumps out me when I look at the 76 results is, I mean, I'm just going to name off the countries of the top eight women, Soviet Union, Bulgaria, East Germany, East Germany, Soviet Union, Bulgaria, East Germany and Romania. I mean, knowing what we know now, probably all of those women were on steroids or drugs at some level. How were you aware that, that drugs was taking over the sport? Were any U.S. women on drugs? Were you ever tempted to do drugs? How, how big of a, of a thing was that? Because it seems like since then, all the way up to now, drugs and track and field, you can't get away from it. True. Uh, for the U.S. women, it was just starting. So we didn't know that much about it, we, but we could tell by looking at the the manliness of a, a lot of the competitors that we were running against. We're like, you know, they're, they're taking something. Um, I was aware, but I didn't really pay it any attention because I could still hang with them. Um, unfortunately, I remember training at the uh, Colorado Springs camp, uh, campus one year, uh, in preparation, probably preparation for the 1980 games. When one of the American coaches walked up to me, I had, I was on the track. It was my, my time to be on the track, but he wanted to do a time tryout with his girls who were basically sprinters 400 and down. And I ended up almost beating his top girl. And he, he came over and he said, I had no idea you had that type of speed. And I said, yeah, I used to run, run sprints. And um, he took me around, walked with me around to the back of the track and started talking. And he said, you could be the greatest half miler ever lived. And I said, you know, I didn't know where he was coming from. I was like, well, I'm working really hard and, um, you know, we're trying some new things with me as in as far as uh, weights are concerned, you know, and I'm just <laughs> sharing with him, not knowing where he's coming from. And he says, you don't understand. I'm telling you, you could be the greatest ever half mile woman ever lived if you just took if you just took some steroids. And I, it stopped me in my tracks. And I said, what did you say? It's if, if you just took a little something that will help, will help you, nobody could beat you and nobody would be able to, to break your records. So I looked at him and I said, first of all, I speak to thousands of young people, kids in schools across this nation. How do you expect me to stand in front of them and lie? I said, because this would be a lie. I'm not coming to them with my God-given gift. I'm coming th to them with some type of synthetic help. And, and I want them to uh, develop their character and be honest and trustworthy. At how can I stand in front of them? And I said, the, and the other thing, um, and, and this may sound a little religious to you, but what do I tell the Lord when, when I stand before him? And he says, what did you do with what I gave you? You know, I have to answer to the Lord for my gift. You don't. 
And he said, well, I'm not talking about all that religious stuff. And I said, I'm not either, but I'm trying to answer your question because this is a lot more than just trying to um, be the best in the world. If I can't be the best in the world with who I am and what I've been given, then somebody else needs to be. But I'm going to give it the best shot I have. I'm going to work hard as I can. I'm going to take my gift and develop it to its highest potential and then give it back. And he said, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and he walked off. Sad thing about that, this, this guy got caught and he was expelled for the rest of his life for, for ever doing anything with track and field ever again. Do you, can you say who he was or is he keeping that secret? I, I'd rather not. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but later on that summer, you, I you got plenty one, of time. <laughs> okay. Later on that summer or 76, after you, you know, didn't make the final, you did run a 157.9, which ended up being the American record all the way through, through. So you broke two at the Olympic trials, which was the first sub two. You don't stop there. You improve all the way to 157.9 at the U.S. USSA USSR meet, I guess, in College Park, Maryland. Right. But you're only third in that race because these, you know, probably drugged up Russian women beat you. What was that like to, I mean, you're running two seconds faster than you ever have before. You get the American record, but you're only third in the race. So were you excited, thrilled, or, or and then also how, how do you, are you running so much faster because they're helping pull you to these fast times? Or is this training advanced a lot between 1976 and 1968? No, so what actually happened is um, I was third, but the the second Russian girl, she and I came in dead head. Both of us came in at the same time and leaned, and they just gave it to her. Uh, but uh, it was a unique time for me because um, she and I began to talk to each other afterward and found out not only were we uh, half mile runners, but we also had had an uh, unsuccessful marriage. Both of us was divorced. Both of us had little boys and both of us uh, were looking at thinking this is it. You know, we're finished. <laughs> I'm finished. So it was but it was exciting for me because uh, 157, shoot. That's that's still competitive now. And um, I was just so excited uh, to have run. That was actually a tribute run because, as I said, I thought that was my last run. And I had actually said, Lord, thanks for giving me the gift that you've given me as a runner. This is for you. And so for 650 meters, I was leading. In fact, the coaches, the Russian coach ran out on the track screaming at his women Come, as I was coming off the last curve, uh, realizing she is not slowing down. She's not slowing down. You've got to go get her now. And actually, he could have disqualified his girls by doing that because you don't supposed to run out on the track and, and act crazy. But you know, I had actually led that whole thing because it was a tribute run. And then you came back another Olympic trials. I mean, four more years later, 158.30 to win that one. And that was your fastest one and your last one, which is crazy. But 
uh, one, I'm just amazed how, how you kept getting faster. I am interested in the training. Was was training for you much different in 1980 yeah. and 1968? Oh, and yeah. also, I'm kind of curious what you could think you could run now, but maybe first sort of talk about the training, how you train. I mean, not now, now, but like. I, uh, during that time, I uh, had started doing weight training. I had a different coach that had come up from Indiana who worked with me, and he started me on a, a weight training regimen that was new. And and that's one of the things that kept me under two, two minutes. Most of the times when I was r- uh, running that last uh, two years, um, 78, 79, I was actually, excuse me, actually running under two minutes uh, consistently because of the, the difference in my training. And ha- I know, had I trained like that earlier, I, I could have easily been under two minutes. There was a time that I actually um, ran uh, a one fifty. I was on a 152 pace in Italy. Radio, uh, Italy. And, um, it, again, it was a tribute run. I just said, Lord, I'm going to take out as fast as I can. Just help me finish. Uh, and what happened is that after about 700 meters, I hit a wall because I hadn't trained for that type of race, but I hit a wall. I thought I had hit a wall before, but I hadn't apparently and uh, end up running a 159 flat. But uh, then is when I, it hit me that I had the capability of running a 152. But that's scary to even think about. I mean, that's scary for anyone to think about. But I think with proper training. We were debating this last week, I think, on the podcast. Again, I think you would totally be competitive. I mean, do you agree with this assessment? This was my argument. If we put you in the Olympic trials next year, in, in the peak of your life, I think you could give Ajay Wilson a run for her money. Oh, Ajay is is my protege. And I've been kind of pouring into her. Um, I remember a few years back when she was running uh, as a front runner. and um, it's it's amazing because she came to me and she said, I noticed that you are a front runner and everybody tells me that's not the way to run this race. I said, don't listen to anybody. Do not listen to. I said, because you're going to get better and better and better. It's the more you run this way that you're running. And so and I gave her a few other tips and uh, I'm really pulling for her. I really am. Um, I love that young lady. She's she's a very precious woman and uh, one with a lot of integrity um, and one who is really looking at becoming a chaplain later on. So, yeah. But I don't think, I, I don't know if I could, <laughs> that, that would be quite a feat. I was so excited for her when she ran at 155. Woohoo! I was like, yes! You know, because she's going to pull other half miles in from America. She's going to p- be able to pull them. And then, you know, we talked about the controversial steroids and stuff in, in the 70s in the Eastern Bloc. But the other thing that's been more recent is sort of 
the the intersex women competing. I mean, obviously, it's actually interesting to see what your take is. I mean, God made these people like this, you know, Castro Semenya, Francine Nansabo. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people think they should compete in the women's category without some sort of restrictions. Have you been following that? And what are your thoughts on the situation? I have. Um, now you're getting into some really heavy stuff here. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I talked to my wife about it. She, she, I personally don't think they should be allowed to compete. I mean, I just think that it's, the same, it's no different to me than the transgender women. I feel, I feel for these women. But to me, it's just not fair. But and my wife, who's not really a track and field fan, she, she was, she's like, oh, you have so much sympathy for Castro Semenya. I'm like, yeah, I do as a person. But I, I think you got to separate the two. But it's, yeah, certainly not an easy situation, but it's been one that, I mean, imagine Ajay. Imagine how famous Ajay Wilson would be, or even Alicia Montani, if you talk about, if you took out all the steroids in front of her. And all these rates. If, if you took out all the intersex women and steroids women ahead of Alicia Montano, she'd probably be an Olympic champion like you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I have talked with them as well and wanted to know how they felt about this because I'm not in that situation other than, you know, what I was looking at back during my time, but it wasn't as, as big and they didn't know how to cover it up and, and a whole lot of stuff, but their situation is really different uh, because people are wanting to legalize, um, you know, transgender running. And of course with Semenyes, uh, uh, I met her and um, she reminded me of um, the Czechoslovakian girl that I met when I was running that I thought was, a 200 meter male as how rough she looked. But my, my thing is um, biologically, they're going to have to decide, you know, what, what they're going to do because women in the middle distance are really complaining. I mean, of all different nations are complaining uh, about unfairness. And I think what they're trying to look at is how many um, test, testosterone hormones are in your body that that they can they can allow before there is a cutoff and say no that's too much you're you're more male than you are female. Um, Semenyes, when I think when she was uh, a baby uh, was. Um, was looked at by the medical team and weighed was whether she had more estrogen or testosterone. And at the time she had more estrogen, but she had a lot of testosterone also. So they tricked, they, they pulled her over to female. So, you know, that's, that's basically what she's doing. But when they, they tested her in these last couple years, her testosterone was higher. So it put her in a different category. It's interesting because I told my husband when I first saw her run on television, I said, you know, she's running like a male. Her gait, she has a gait that runs like a male, not like a female because a female's hips, um, her, your hips go out where it can carry a, a baby. Her hips, her hips were turned in. 
uh, like a male's and she ran like a male. I thought, huh, there's something different about her. And then when I met her, uh, I had to be careful of what my face looked like because when she finally said hello to me, her voice was deeper than my husband's. And, and she had, you know, facial hair, beard, kind of light, light beard and a mustache. And, um, she was a nice person, very nice person. I mean, I, I met her a few times too, Have obviously, you? just in the media. But the, I remember the first time I met her, I was so shocked how deep her voice was. And now I'm kind of used to it. But it just shows it's just sort of a, I mean, it, it's a, the world is way more complex than we make it out to be. I mean, because I'm talking about some of the stuff that was going on in 1968, and I can't believe it, and all these protests, and how poorly black people were treated in America, and women as well. And you probably, if you fast forwarded 50 years, you couldn't believe that we'd be talking about whether Castor Semenya, what category she competes in, and then right. the coronavirus would be ruining the world. I mean, wow. <laughs> the, the, uh, the coronavirus is, that's a whole different something. This had actually, this has nothing to do with sports. And you have to be careful of allowing sports to become your God because this will kill it. It, it's, it's, um, I, I, I listen to some people who, who selfishly talk about, you know, well, so sad that we, you know, bring the kids out. We, we can still do this. We can still train, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute, there are people dying by the thousands or going through hellish type of severe suffering. And you're talking about doing what? I mean, this is not a time to be self-centered and look in. It's a time when actually God is calling us to look out to each other and to love each other uh, in a way that maybe we hadn't even thought about doing it before. And uh, before we got on the air, you know, you were talking about how you still counsel these Olympic athletes and you were going to be a chaplain in Tokyo and that so many athletes are so caught up in being the Olympian that they're really struggling now with the Olympics being postponed. Yeah. So what are you telling them now? I've been sharing with them my experience of the 1980 uh, boycott and that how hard I ha had trained and come out of, come out of my, I, my so-called retirement and um, to, to make the team you know, and to give it everything I had uh, to try to give it my best. And then all of a sudden looming over this while I was training was the, the knowledge or the, the understanding that we could, we could boycott. Then I'm trying to figure out, okay, should, should I continue on? What's the purpose in all, in all of this? Why, why did I come out of uh, of my training out of my um, retirement to train again. And these were questions I was asking God because I felt like he was the one to call me out. So now what? And in my, in my personal time of prayer, I felt like the Lord said, I, I need you. And I thought, I don't know what that means, but I'll just keep on training. So I did. And I share with them, you know, the struggles that I had and the questions that I had some days when I was out there by myself training um, 
and pushing myself beyond what I wanted to, to, to do. Um, and then wondering, okay, is the, I hope that this for some reason is going to work out in some good. The other thing is that I, um, I, I did very well at the Olympic trials. I broke my Olympic trials record. Uh, I was Number one, I had prayed with the young ladies, my competitors for the finals, and every last one of them ran their personal best, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, and then I was named the most outstanding female athlete of the meet. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe that's what he meant, uh, that, that I would have the opportunity. And that something else that was strange that happened. I had a, a dream before I came out to the track for the finals. And I saw myself running in the stadium alone. And, and then there were spectators all around, you know, in, in, in the stadium and they started praising God. And I thought I woke up cause I was like, nah, uh-uh. <laughs> that does not happen at a track meet. And so <laughs> I call myself, you know, doing that. But what happened is it actually came to being because when I started off, I did not see that in my lane, I was in lane eight again, and there was a photographer laying flat out in my lane, going to get a shot of us coming out, you know, after the gun shot off, coming around the curve. Well, I, I didn't see him until I came around the curve and there he is. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what do I do now? Cause you know, I didn't want to impede my competitor in the seventh lane. So I picked up really fast and moved over and just edging into the seventh lane. But I then kept going, heading for the 200 meters. Well, by this time, the people, and you know how uh, track uh, smart the Oregonians are, that the people in the stands had seen me on TV and heard me do a, a concert while I was there. And a bunch of them had come out to encourage me, you know, about making my fourth team. And they thought I was running for a world record and I wasn't. <laughs> and all of a sudden people were saying, run for the glory of God, run for Jesus, Madeline, come on, Madeline, give him the glory. And they, the whole stadium start picking this up. Cause whatever works, they, they'll do it. And, and I, then I thought, okay, am I still dreaming? And if so, please do not wake me. You know. And after I finished that, you know, I was interviewed and um, had an opportunity to share my testimony of, you know, how I was as a little girl, a sickly little girl and how I was found and whatever. So uh, this went on. So I'm thinking, okay, this is the big thing that God wants me for. Well, we went to the white house and, uh, the team because you can't boycott without a team. So you had to make the team. And so the team got a congressional medal of honor for making the team, even though the boycott, you know, was prevalent then. And, while I was there, I was captain of the women's track team and the other captains of the other track, uh, other sports came together and they said, we need somebody to give the response to the presidential address to the American people on the steps of the Capitol. And 
how this happened that they chose me, I don't know. Cause I'm thinking, I don't even know these people, uh, but they chose me to give, give the speech uh, along with another guy who was a modern pentathlete. And all he said is, listen, just write it out and tell me what you want me to say. I was like, Hey, wait, wait, you know, I don't know what to say. So about two o'clock that morning, I, I just gave up. I didn't know what to say. And finally, it's like the Lord said, uh, okay, finally. And it just started coming within 10 minutes. I wrote out a speech about America, the family. And I shared with how we as athletes, this is how we represent our family to the world is to compete. And I said, but at the same time, as a part of the family, the father has the last word. And I said, in this situation, where our president has made a decision um, for us not to go because the Russians are breaking a rule, a major rule there. You're not to host the games and be in war at the same time. And they refuse to shut down their war with Afghanistan and host the games and basically said to the world, you're going to come whether you like it or not. And, and we are not going to get out of Afghanistan. And so that's when President Carter said, no, we're not. If you don't come out of Afghanistan or at least shut the war down for the games, then we're not coming. And so with that decision, um, I, I said, you know, yeah, we have from A to Z, you know, some that don't like the president now, don't appreciate what he did or whatever, to those on the opposite end who like, we are patriots, we are part of this family and, and we will stand behind him and everything in between. And the one thing that I requested was support. I said, you know, as part of the family, we really need support from the corporate level and, um, for them to step up. And that's what happened. It became a prophetic word. And within the next four years, we had the backing, we had extra money, um, that we, Peter Ubrah put together a beautiful economic package. And, uh, it's been going on like that backing ever since. So that's what I share and I, I try to share with them and encourage them that it doesn't matter what else happens outside of something that you're going for. You will never stop being an athlete. That's what you were born to be. That's what you're created to be. You're beautifully and wonderfully made and your soul knows it. And so it's not about something causing you not to be who you are and who you were born to be. You are just that because that's the gift that God has given to you. Um, so I, I try to encourage them. Those who, um, said, you know, have said to me, well, Madeline, this was going to be my last time. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'll be able to go on to an, another year, uh, or, you know, this is it for me. Um, and then others, it's interesting because you have the other scale where others had were injured and hurt. And now they have another chance to heal and get back on course for uh, training and come back out. So they're, they're looking at it with a hopeful look. And then you have those who 
hadn't made the team yet, but almost, it was almost time to make the team. They have to re-gear. Um, but uh, one of the things I do find is that very few are saying, you know, we didn't do the right thing to postpone it because they realize it's not worth your life to go and just be what put together with people. And then what if you, what if you went there and you're, somebody has the, the, the virus and you get sick and don't get a chance to, to, uh, participate or what, what happens if, uh, you know, you're there and people start dying. I mean, that, that's not a good, <laughs> you have to look at the reality of what the possibilities of this is by forcing something that was not supposed to happen. So most of them are saying, you know, yeah, we, we, we realize that that was the right thing to do. and We'll just go on. You're having Tokyo in 2021. I mean, yeah, it's not what the athletes wanted, but it's much better than not having the Olympics like you got deprived of in 1980. So I'm hoping to be in Tokyo next year and hopefully we'll meet you. But, Are you going to be trying to run? No, 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 no. I'm too old for that. I'm 45. I'm 46, actually. Oh, you're young. I'll be there with a the journalist. journalist. He's only 43. Well, then he made the team. It's true. Everyone's running older these days. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? Especially the longer it gets. That's right. I mean, a guy I used to compete about, just Abdi Abdurrahman made the Olympic team, and he's, what, 42, John? It's kind of crazy. 43. 43. So, no, no competing for me. I'll be there cheering like you. I want to meet you in person next year there. so That would be great. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we call this a podcast? I think I think you've asked all the questions. You did a really good job of asking some very um, point, pointed questions that, um, that I appreciate having the opportunity to answer. Um, you guys keep running. And uh, the Lord bless and keep you and uh, keep you safe and healthy so that we can see each other next year. <laughs> I'm going to do my part on this end to do what I can to help the, the athletes and uh, be there for them next year. Yeah, keep praying for everybody. I do have one question now, though. At the very beginning off air, you were talking about marathons and, you know, you're not a 5K runner. You're not a 10K runner. What's the longest you've ever run in your life? Seven miles. Seven miles. And would you do that back in the day when you were training? Um, I did that back in the day when I was training, yes. Um, I don't know what made me do that. I, I basically never ran that long. Even even in training for the half mile, usually my longest, my long days would be four miles. But, you know, I'd start off with like a six-minute flat mile and then then I take it down so well it definitely worked and your career is amazing and I hope I'm glad that we sort of discovered it I feel kind of ignorant for not knowing as much about you as I should have but you're an inspiration and that's not your fault (laughs) well I'm I'm a a journalist I'm I'm a track and field journalist I'm supposed to know this stuff Yeah, both on and off the track, Madeline, it's been been really great to to learn about you and be inspired by you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you as well. And well, then let let this not be the last time, eh? Yeah, for sure.